I remember when the plane landed, my husband picked me up at the airport. And the first thing I told him was, I'm going to do an MBA. And that very evening, I had already looked up the programs and I had found the program that I wanted to pursue. And I, a couple of months later, I was uh, starting my, my <laughs> MBA program. So Wow, that's yeah. a momentous decision to yeah. make. <laughs> yeah, no, it's funny because I'm, I'm always like that. I, I scan and scan and scan. And then when I make a decision, I'm very determined. I go for it. I have no doubts. Welcome to Health Tech. On this episode, we are wrapping up our second season with something a bit different, a conversation with Claudia Mitchell. Claudia is a geneticist and an award-winning entrepreneur. She works in one of the most cutting-edge areas of medicine, and she made her company, Universal Cells, into one of the biggest startup success stories in Pacific Northwest biotech. On today's episode, Claudia tells us about her journey from starting her PhD program as a single mom in a new country to building universal cells with just $300,000 in seed funding, and then selling the company for more than $100 million. From GeekWire.com in Seattle, I'm Claire McGrain, and this is Health Tech, the podcast where we tell you the stories behind cutting-edge health innovation. Stay with us. Support for Health Tech comes from Seattle Children's, whose pioneering research institute is not only changing medicine, but creating life-saving therapies for pediatric diseases such as cancer, type 1 diabetes, sickle cell anemia, and many more. Seattle Children's. Hope. Care. Cure. Before I jump into my conversation with Claudia, I'd like to tell you a bit about her background. She was born and raised in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. She moved to Denmark to live and study for several years before starting her PhD program in yet another new country, France. She now lives and works in Seattle, and she was recognized as the 2018 EY Entrepreneur of the Year for Pacific Northwest Life Sciences. I want to ask you about a moment in your life that I think was interesting to me because it spoke a lot about you, and that's when you arrived in Paris to start your PhD program with a four-month-old baby in tow. (laughs) Tell me about that experience. Yeah, that's definitely a a life-changing and... uh, life-building experience because it was definitely the toughest thing I've done in my life. I learned a lot. People say that it's tough to be a single mom and people say that it's tough to go through a PhD program. I did both in a new country for me at the time. After having done that, I feel like uh, I could, you know, do anything else and succeed. So that was really, I was only 25. And uh, that was um, a great, tough experience that shaped me Mm -hmm. for the rest of my life. Why did you decide to go to Paris, as you said, a new country where you didn't have family, I assume? Yeah, I didn't have anyone. It was because the lab there interested me very much. It's the work that they were doing. And I was passionate about that. And It was the right decision in terms of career. It was a great scientific uh, experience and uh, I had a very successful uh, PhD thesis. My thesis uh, project was to study uh, how to repopulate livers with um, genetically modified liver cells to cure um, liver diseases. So that was the aim of my my PhD thesis. But it was tough. But it was also a a great life experience. So after your, you had completed your PhD, what did you do next? 
I came to the University of Washington to do my postdoc. So my goal, since I was 13, I decided that I was going to be a geneticist, and I did everything, you know, bachelor's, master's, PhD, and uh, and continued with, uh, with a postdoc. So that next step was exactly, you know, in the same trajectory towards an academic position. So I came to the University of Washington for three years for a postdoc. And which was almost a mandatory thing to do before you got uh, those very exclusive and difficult to get positions in France as a tenured faculty at INSERM, the equivalent of the NIH, the National Institute of Health. You said you wanted to be a geneticist since you were 13. What made you decide on that? You know, that's funny because I read a lot at the time, and uh, but I'm really not convinced that I knew what genetics was at the time. <laughs> I, I think I thought I had an idea, and uh, and that sounded very, very interesting. And uh, I really liked the, you know, the idea of genetics and evolution and how genes shaped you. And I wanted to study it more. I'm really not sure that I knew what it was, <laughs> but um, I had that dream and that, yeah, it, it's interesting how one finds your path, you think you know something. And it was not until I got my tenured faculty position in France that I realized that maybe I should have, you know, explored other (laughs) options. Because uh, when I became an academic uh, researcher, I realized that that was not really my call. I wanted to do something more impactful. I wanted to not be in the labs far removed from reality, I wanted to do something more real with a, a, a closer impact in society. And how did you decide to challenge that new kind of goal? You know, it took a few years, a couple of years to find what uh, was going to be my next step because I, I quickly realized that it was not academia, but I didn't know where to go. For a while, I thought about going maybe into medicine uh, there you have an, a real impact with patients all the time. So being like a doctor that actually sees yes, patients. Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah, as opposed to in the lab. Mm-hmm. But um, through serendipitous uh, events, uh, a person who sat beside me on an airplane talking about how he, as a neuronautical engineer at age 35, he, he decided to do an MBA and uh, that opened up his mind for other things and he was now an entrepreneur it had changed his life and at the time it was funny I was 35 and I was thinking about you know moving and doing something else Uh, and uh, I remember when the plane landed my husband picked me up at the airport and the first thing I told him was I'm gonna do an MBA and that very evening I had already looked up the programs and I had found the program that I wanted to pursue. And I, a couple of months later, was uh, starting my, my <laughs> MBA program. So Wow, that's yeah. a momentous decision to yeah. make. <laughs> yeah, no, it's funny because I, I'm always like that. I, I scan and scan and scan. And then when I make a decision, I'm very determined. I go for it. I have no doubts. It's very, I, ha- I think I have very strong instincts. And when something speaks to me, I know right away that that's the right path. Interesting. Did you find yourself doing that once you had become an entrepreneur as well? Very much so. Yes, very much. Uh, when I was 
answering the questionnaire for the EY Entrepreneur of the Year uh, booklet, one of the questions was, uh, what did you wish you knew before you started? And uh, I, my answer was, I wished I knew to follow my intuition every time. Because I think uh, my intuition has always been uh, spot on. I'm curious what drew you away from following that intuition? What kind of stood in your way of, of doing what instinctually thought, right? You know, questioning, not having enough background information to, as a, a scientist, you're always trying to have evidence that, you know, leads to you towards that path. And uh, sometimes my instinct uh, doesn't have that clear vision of what the evidence is, but the intuition is strong. And I wish uh, I knew better to follow my intuition when I felt that okay strongly about something. So once you've decided you wanted to go get your MBA, did, did you go to the University of Washington? That- no, I actually did that in Paris. Uh, I went to uh, the oldest engineering school in, uh, in France, uh, for that's the kind of the, the equivalent of the MIT, Ecole des Ponts. And I did an executive MBA there. Mm-hmm. I'm a geek and I love studying. <laughs> so I always joke that for somebody who has, you know, uh, had spent until then, uh, my life uh, going deeper and deeper, that experience really opened up my horizons. And I joke that uh, I've learned uh, uh, about a very, very uh, novel concept for me, which was called profits. <laughs> <laughs> because um, for an academic researcher, that is really another, you know, a world. And so it was very, very positive um, experience for me, not only educational experience, but also the the contact with other people from other other industries and other backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Very enriching. While we're on the topic, one of the things that I think is so interesting about your journey is that you moved so quickly from a very structured uh, institutional institution, academia, mm-hmm. and moved into startup world and and founded this startup. And I think that's something that's very difficult for people moving from academia, as many health researchers are are in academia, biostaticians, like anything you could think of, academia to a startup or a healthcare system even to a startup. I'm curious what advice you would give other people who are trying to make that jump. Well, it's not for everybody. It's I agree with you. It's two different mentalities. So you have to search your soul and see if you have that kind of temperament and, and personality to want that kind of role, be in a startup. Because uh, academia, the pace is slow. It's all very known. A certain, for example, I was coming from a tenured position. So I knew everything, how my, my career would um evolve and it was very predictable and a startup is the whole opposite it's very unpredictable lots of risks but lots of rewards too it really spoke to me so i i it was during my mba that i realized that i had uh, that entrepreneurial gene and you have to have that uh, determination that resilience in order 
to be at a startup, especially a founder of a startup. It was really a perfect thing for me. I'm very passionate, very determined, very resilient. So that spoke to me. But I, I understand that those are the same characteristics that didn't make me well-suited for academia. After the break, Claudia and I will talk about how she went from the research lab to leading an award-winning company. Plus, she'll explain the game-changing potential of universal stem cell technology. That's coming up next on Health Tech. GeekWire's Health Tech podcast is sponsored by Seattle Children's Research Institute. I'm speaking with Dr. Nick Vitanza, an assistant professor at Seattle Children's, who is leading a new study into immunotherapy for children with brain cancer. How does this treatment work? When a cancer forms in your body, one of the first things it has to do is actually evade your immune system. And so the fact that a cancer has grown, it's now essentially invisible to the immune system. So it's as if the cells that you should have had in your body to prevent cancer never really formed the right target to get rid of it. And we give them that. I spend a lot of time focusing on a disease called DIPG, which is sadly still a universally fatal tumor, in which case the day I meet a patient and I have to tell them that this is one of the things we treat that has a survival of zero. So there's clearly unacceptable situations like that that hopefully immunotherapy will one day be able to solve and unlock a cure for some of these children. Nick Vitanza is an assistant professor at Seattle Children's Research Institute. Learn more at seattlechildrens.org. Welcome back to Health Tech. When we left, Claudia was in the middle of her MBA program. And as part of that program, she partnered with a friend in Seattle to co-found her first startup. She moved her family back to the U.S. and worked to build this company through the 2008 recession. After a few years, the startup decided to take a new direction, and she started managing the research division of a nonprofit. But in her own words, the term serial entrepreneur is really redundant. She was soon looking for her next startup, and that's when she met David Russell, a geneticist at the University of Washington. He had developed a new way to modify stem cells so they're universally compatible, In other words, stem cells from one person that could be used in medicines taken by anybody else. David was looking for an entrepreneur to turn his discovery into a business, and Claudia was looking for a discovery that she could build her next startup on. So they teamed up and co-founded Universal Cells. So for people who aren't familiar, what exactly are stem cells and what are they used for? So stem cells are cells that have the potential to become more specialized cells. They are the precursors of the more specialized cells in the body because your body has different cells that fulfill different functions. Your brain cells are different from your liver cells, from your uh, heart cells. So the stem cells can become something more specialized. They are more uh, primitive precursor cells. And when I talk about a pluripotent stem cell, means that it's a stem cell that can become anything in your body. Because there are some stem cells that are more specialized. There are some stem cells in the in the brain, for example, that they will only give brain cells. A pluripotent stem cell can really become anything in, in your body. And there are mainly two types of pluripotent stem cells, uh, what we call induced pluripotent stem cell, which is an adult cell. We put some factors into those cells to make them believe that they are embryonic stem cells. They are reprogrammed to think, quote unquote, they are embryonic stem cells. Or you can use 
true embryonic stem cells that have the potential to become anything in your body. And what we do in, specifically at Universal Cells is that we take those pluripotent stem cells and we manipulate their genome using gene editing tools to make their DNA different in a way that they don't have the surface markers that show that they are foreign when they're put in a, uh, another person's body. So they kind of have um, an invisibility cloak around them where they are not recognized by the patients or the recipient immune system as being foreign. So they're invisible to other people's immune system. Mm -hmm. Again, for people who aren't familiar, why is that a big deal? That's a great question. It is a big deal because when you're trying to make therapies, if you're having to take a cell from each patient, then to manipulate them in the lab and then put back, that costs a lot of money. It's very complex. You have to do that for each individual patient. And it's not always predictable because each cell from each person will be a little bit different. So you can't always predict how viable they will be. But if you have one cell that you can uh, grow indefinitely because those cells grow indefinitely and you can use that as the starting material for all the cell therapies for everybody, it will bring the prices much lower. It makes it much easier to distribute. You don't have to collect uh, the stem cells from each individual and it will be much more effective because you know these cells, you can characterize them much better. The other way of um, using stem cells is instead of making a stem cell from each person, you can have uh, a stem cell from uh, one individual and then you give to another, but you have to give immunosuppressants, like with organ transplantations, right? With a universal donor cell, you, you, even if you have a, a stem cell that doesn't come from the, the recipient, you don't need to immunosuppress. Those immunosuppressive drugs in the long term are very toxic, so you want to avoid that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. This is an interesting trend that, that universal cell is almost counter to the trend, I would say. But there's an interesting trend in, I would say, medicine overall of trying to personalize treatments to a patient, the idea of precision medicine. And we've discussed that on several different episodes this year. And in Universal Cell's case, it's almost the opposite. You're trying to make something that's one size fits all so that you don't have these problems with, with recipient immune systems rejecting or attacking the cells that are being put into their body. I'm just curious what your take on that is and how that kind of fits into the broader picture. Now, that's a good, uh, that's a very good question. And uh, you can think about personalized medicine in different ways. You have something that is tailored to you because you understand what your need is specifically to you because either you have had some diagnostic tests made that showed that your specific genetic variant needs this kind of drug versus another one that you won't respond to. These are very, very powerful tools, but you're not developing a whole product, a, a medicine for one, only one person. So it's just a diagnostic that is personalized that will indicate which treatment will be 
more likely successful. But what we are talking about here in uh, developing stem cell treatments is that it's even though it's feasible to develop um, the patient's own cell therapies, it's not a commercially viable product because it costs a lot of money. It's difficult to deliver. It's difficult to distribute. It's uh, It has a lot of logistical problems. It's not economically viable. That is the difference between the precision medicine when you're talking about tailoring the right medicines to the right people versus making a specific medicine for each patient. So can you point to one procedure or treatment or situation where having a universal stem cell would really change the kind of the current status quo of how something is treated? Yes. I can give you two good examples. Uh, one example is the current uh, T-cell therapies that are coming to the market with uh, Juno, or if you talk about uh, a local company now acquired by by Celgene, they are developing a, a T-cell therapy that is autologous, meaning it's uh, the patient cells that are uh, recovered, manipulated in the lab, and then put back to fight their cancers. It's a, a very complex treatment and very costly. So if we were to have, instead of these autologous T-cell therapies, we were to replace that with allogeneic, meaning not cells from the patients themselves, but from another person, you would uh, really decrease the cost enormously, you decrease the complexities. So that would be a huge application. And for any type of other uh, cell therapies, when you have allogeneic products, they are far less costly and easier to distribute. The other example I wanted to mention, you were saying how can we apply universal donor cell therapies. One example that I like, and I think that it would be a great application for our universal donor cells, is diabetes type 1, which uh, is an autoimmune disease. So your body uh, or the body of uh, type 1 patients, they're rejecting their own beta pancreatic cells. If you were to make beta pancreatic cells out of a universal donor stem cell, the patient's bodies wouldn't reject these cells. Uh, it's even better than the patient's own cells because the, the body's rejecting their own cells. And if you were to make stem cells from themselves, they would still be rejecting those stem cells or those beta pancreatic cells derived from themselves, right? But if we make universal donor cells, they're also invisible to their autoimmunity. So there are companies that are trying to do that. So how far away is all of this from actually happening? Yeah, unfortunately, that's the, the, the point in science. Everything takes a long time. And, it, and when you talk about stem cell therapies, one have always to be very careful because they hold a lot of promise because these cells can, can do a lot of things. They can kind of rejuvenate your body. But it's a, a not if you just in, inject in stem cells into your body. That's not going to do the trick. You have to be very careful because there are a lot of charlatans out there trying to claim that they have stem cell therapies. They're not proven treatments. There are no easy treatments like that. You, uh, it takes a long time, and it's uh, a very long path to show that these treatments are actually safe 
and efficient and efficacious because it's a very complex thing. So it takes time. It will take time. And it's good that it takes time because uh, it's for the patient's own safety. But I truly believe that in probably in the next five to 10 years, we're going to be seeing medications and uh, new medicines derived from from these uh, new cell therapies. To your knowledge, has any of these therapies actually been used in a patient yet? Or is this still kind of in the lab and in some senses still theoretical? Well, there have been several pluripotent stem cell derived trials in the clinic. There have been trials uh, for Parkinson's, for macular degeneration, for uh, diabetes also. So there are several trials underway, but nothing using a pluripotent stem cell uh, has been approved yet. So going back to Universal Cells, you sold the company recently for $100 million. Is that correct? Correct, yeah. What made you decide that it was the right time to sell the company and that you wanted to do that instead of growing independently? Yeah, that's a great question. It was an opportunity when one of our partners came to us and uh, put the offer on the table. It was a tough decision because, as you say, you know, it's uh, something we wanted to continue to grow. But we felt like um, at this point, our partner, Estellas, would be able to continue with our vision in a better way because they were better equipped. They are the second largest pharma in Japan, so they have the funds necessary to pursue our vision in a way that it would be much harder if you had to do it or either organically or through venture capital uh, funding. So we felt that it was the right timing for the acquisition because they would be able to take the baton and run with it and uh, continue to fulfill our vision. And you're still with the company right now. Are you planning on kind of continuing and staying there really long term? Or would you like to get back into the entrepreneurship world at some point? (laughs) I'm open to all possibilities. I'm a lifelong learner and I'm enjoying the opportunity to learn what it is to be inside a big pharma company. So that's been a very, a very interesting experience for me. I'm learning Japanese. Also. Really? Yes. How I've many decided. languages do you speak? I speak six and Japanese will be my seventh. Wow. Can so, you give them to me real fast? Yeah. So English, French, Portuguese, Spanish, Danish, uh, German, and now Japanese. So. so you could open a language school if you wanted to leave Estella's. <laughs> yeah, as a hobby, yes. yes. Or again, you know, conversational uh, language school because I love to talk. <laughs> Speaking of languages and that side of your life. So you mentioned you have a husband, you have children. How many children do you have? I have two kids, a 21-year-old daughter and a 13-year-old son. Mm-hmm. What do they think of all of this moving around and you oh, saving the world? <laughs> so my daughter, she moved with me to Paris. So I think it was the biggest gift to her that I could ever have uh, given. And uh, a life lesson to her was to never give up. She has seen all the, the, the stages and how hard it has been. 
and uh, she's lived through all the difficulties with me. And I remember the day, of, you know, when when the payment for the, from the acquisition arrived in my bank account. I thought the moment I thought of was a moment in Paris. Uh, uh, coming back home with her and my and a stroller and looking through the glass of a bakery and saying, "Well, am I going to buy a baguette?" And I said, "No, I don't have money for the baguette. I'm going to save for the the diapers." That was uh, it, it's been a long journey. Having shown her to pursue your dreams and uh, that is a very very strong. And she is she is. Um, a musician. So it's a tough career. So that's a very good lesson for her. She She's a music composer and uh, she composes for film. So it's not going to be an easy path. But if she can take that lesson and run with it and say, okay, this is my passion. I want to go after it. And so I think that that's the biggest gift I could yeah. give to her. Like mother, like daughter, she's going to go do something very difficult. Yeah, yeah no, it's very funny because uh, when uh, the company was acquired, uh, she she called and she said, oh, mom, I'm so happy for you. And uh, I'm also so happy that I'm not a scientist because you just put the bar very high. <laughs> <laughs> she chose something very different. Very yeah. different. Yeah. Very different. Um, one other question I had. Do you still have a connection to Brazil? Do you go back there? Do you ever consider moving back there? I don't consider moving back to Brazil. I consider moving back to France. It's funny, but I feel myself more French than Brazilian at this point. Yeah, I have the triple citizenship, actually. I'm <laughs> French, Brazilian, American now. You've got a lot of lists yes, in your life. <laughs> I do. I do. I like to check boxes. <laughs> but um, I do think about going back to France. But uh, I do go to Brazil uh, once in a while, and this uh, the past year and a half, I've been going back to Brazil way more than I uh, wanted because I've had both my parents who passed away, mm-hmm. so having to deal with all that, their disease and and their passing. So been a crazy year for me. The my mom and my ex husband passed away the same day Estella's sent me the uh, letter of intent for the acquisition. So, wow, yeah. A mixed day, to say the least. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Very intense. Very intense. Do you have any final thoughts or pieces of advice that you want to share before we wrap up? I, You know, people ask me for advice. I always say, talk to as many people as you can. Seek advice because one brain is not enough to think about everything and um, and it's always good to get other people's perspectives and then you decide what to do with them but listen to other people and the other piece of advice that I always uh, tell people is um, if you're not where you want to be keep going because it means that it's not the end yet and an airplane engineer on a plane might change the course of your life (laughs) exactly yes you never know you never know thank you so much for joining me today oh very welcome it's my pleasure claudia mitchell is the co-founder and chief operating officer of universal cells find out more about the company's work at universalcells.com thank you for listening to this final episode of health tech season two 
I have really enjoyed putting this season together, and I'm glad you all came along for the ride. We're already working on plans for a season three, so keep an eye on that podcast feed. And follow me at Claire McGrain on Twitter to get the latest news on all of our podcasts. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a rating and a review on your favorite podcast app, or tell a friend or a colleague about the show. Health Tech is produced and written by me, Claire McGrain, with editing and story help from Todd Bishop. A big thanks to our season two sponsor, Seattle Children's Research Institute. You can find out more about their work at seattlechildrens.org research. To see all of GeekWire's coverage of science, tech, and geek culture, go to geekwire.com and try signing up for our podcast newsletter to see other shows that we produce. We'll see you on the next season of Health Tech. And until then, thanks for listening.